If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to two passages. The first is going to be Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, and the second one is over in the book of Psalms chapter 37. Psalms chapter 37. Oh, for the last several weeks, Pastor Jason has been taking us through uh, the B attitudes. Um, and he, and he, remember, one of the things he said that sticks in my mind is, who you be affects what you do. Who you be is more important. And that is where we're talking here today. Um, in, in, in this particular passage, the first beatitude that we went over is that of being poor in spirit. And these, what's, what's happening here is, is Jesus is meeting with his disciples and some other folks on the side of a mountain. Um, contextually, what has just transpired in the previous chapter is that Jesus has been tempted. He is, um, Satan had led him out into the wilderness for 40 days. And during that 40 days, he was tempted in every way that we are tempted. And he came out the other side without having given in to temptation. He had remained sinless. It was after that temptation that Jesus actually went and began to call his disciples to himself, to be his primary followers. The 12 that would make up his closest friends on this planet were called together, and they were called from all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, there was some guys in there who were, who were laborers. They were known as fishermen. They spent their day out in the sun hauling in big loads of fish into their boat. Their hands were rough. They were strong. They were people who worked for a living. But there was another couple groups, guys in there, that we don't normally think a whole lot about. But there was another disciple called Simon. The scripture says that he was what? A zealot. You know what the zealots were? Zealots were anarchists. They had this desire to overthrow the Roman government who, who were at the time had, were subjugating the people of Israel. And so the zealot movement were all about restoring the, the rule of Israel by any means necessary. They were not above using violence. They were not above using anything in order to restore a national Israeli state. That's one of your disciples. Another one of the disciples was a tax collector. You know what that meant? He cooperated with the enemy state. Not only did he cooperate, he profited from the enemy state. They had vastly different views of how to exist in this world. Can you imagine being one of these 12 disciples, these, these men, these fallible, sinful, regular men that God called into being his inner circle and would be the first disciples that would be responsible for sharing the gospel throughout the world. We tend to think of these guys as somehow um, supernatural because we have the benefit of seeing the entirety of their story. But this is just a day or two after God, Jesus, calls them from their work into their new life as disciples of Jesus Christ. Do you think they may have had some arguments? Or maybe some differences of opinion? Do you think the zealot and the tax collector may have had a difference in their perception about the Roman Empire? Most likely. 
And in all likelihood, we know that they argued about stuff like who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. We, we know they argued about who was going to sit at the right hand of Jesus and the left hand of Jesus. We know that they were human beings with opinions and struggles. Not only that, these same disciples were Jewish men who had all been trained in what the Old Testament law Said They knew that God had made promises to the people of Israel, and they were holding God to those promises, but they differed on how they thought God was going to honor those promises. And the prevailing teaching of the day at this time was that a Messiah was going to come, but that Messiah was going to be a political leader with great charisma who would rally and unify the people of Israel to rise up in rebellion against their Roman captors. And along came Jesus. And the scripture describes Jesus as something different than what they were expecting. The religious leaders of the day expected this Messiah to rise up an army to overthrow with violence and charisma the shackles of the people around them. And, and the, the religious leaders of the day continually worked to try to find this leader. Over and over again, there were different false messiahs that popped up that claimed to be the one that was going to deliver Israel and the hope that they stay, the, the people of Israel had were, was for a coming charismatic, earthly leader who, who looked like the leaders that surrounded them in the, in the surrounding world. In fact, if you, if you go back all the way to the beginning of the people of God being founded, Israel being founded, did you know they didn't start off with a king? They started off with God being in charge. They were what's called a theocracy they literally listen to the voice of God. That is why in the Old Testament, when you go and do a search for the people of God, you look at how their leadership development happened. God took up residence in, the, the, at first, the tabernacle that was a traveling tent within the people of God, and he took up residence within their presence. And later on in the temple, God took residence in their presence. But somewhere along the way, the people of God decided they wanted to adapt the leadership style the, the governmental um, structure that the people around them had. They began to value things that God did not value. Instead of looking for a submissive heart to the people, to, to, to Yahweh, they instead began looking for somebody who looked the part of a leader. They looked for charisma. They looked for power and strength. They looked for looking good. They looked for a leader that resembled the leaders of the nations around them. And what's interesting is that Jesus didn't look like those leaders. He didn't act like those leaders. And he didn't do what they expected him to do. And so when he gathered his disciples to himself, he did a little bit of an initiation an orientation to what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this world. Because the reality is he had to establish values that were in direct opposition to the values of the surrounding culture. 
When, when the surrounding culture valued strength and wealth and all of these things that even today we struggle with, the idea that the people who are wealthy and strong, those are the ones we want to be our leader. They, we want those people, those are the blessed of God. Jesus comes in and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor. Does that sound like a blessed person to you? The poor, the poor in spirit person is the blessed person? Well, that's what Jesus said. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Pastor Jason, over the last several weeks, has, has taught this to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit is for us to know that blessed are those who recognize how spiritually deficient that they are apart from God. In other words, those who know they need saving are blessed. Those who are absolutely convinced of their own self-righteousness are not blessed. I need God. I need saving. I know that I'm a sinner. Therefore, I need to be saved from my sin. That is what he's talking about with blessed are the poor in spirit. And the second beatitude that that we talked about is that blessed are those who mourn. In other words, when we recognize our sin and how we do not have goodness within us to offer to God, we come to the realization that our sin grieves God and therefore because we love God, it grieves us. Sin is not something that we should be able to tolerate without grief if we are a true follower of Jesus because God loved me, we love him. And if we love somebody, when we hurt them, it should bother us. And he is saying, listen, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. When you recognize you're a sinner and that your sin grieves God's heart, that should lead us to grieving over it and it should lead us to repentance and turning because of our desire to please the one who loves us. Both of those together lead us to humility. Being humble before men and humble before God because when we are when we recognize our own sin, I cannot sit in judgment over another sinner just because they sin differently than me. I don't I I struggle with my own sin. So therefore, why should I in my self-righteousness, like the Pharisees, look at somebody over here who's sinning differently than me with some sense of smug self-righteousness when I know the amount of sin that I have been forgiven for? There's no room for arrogance in the house of God. We are all beggars in need of saving. Period. So if Jesus Christ provides that for us, it is not a foundation for some kind of arrogance. It's a foundation for humility, for us to recognize that God loves me in spite of my sin. He doesn't love me because of my goodness. He loves me because he made me. And he has sacrificed his son, Jesus Christ, to die for me because he decided that we were worthy of that sacrifice. Not because we are worthy in and of ourselves, but because he decided we are created in his image and worthy of saving. That should bring us to the point of humility. Humility. 
So here we are, those first two Beatitudes are, are where we are called to have an attitude of humility before God, recognizing our need, that we are poor in spirit, and that we should be mourning over our sin. That humility then leads us to this third Beatitude that we're going to be reading today. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, this is what it says. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You may think it's ironic that my name is Aaron Meeks, and I'm preaching about being the meek that inherits the earth. It's more ironic than you probably know, because the Meeks family is known for a lot of things. Meekness is not one of our strong points. I'm just telling you. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing here, but the reality is, is that the idea of being meek has gotten a very bad rap in our culture today. Imagine this, if you will. Imagine someday, way down the road after Jason retires, you're looking for a new pastor to lead this church. The congregation stands before him, asks questions, and somebody asks the question to, the, to this new pastoral candidate and says, what is the characteristic that makes you the most like Jesus that qualifies you to be the pastor of this church? And what if he was to say, I am meek? Would that impress you? What if... You're, you're, you're talking to your friends and you, you, you're, you're, at, you're at work and you're selecting a new CEO or leader of your organization and you're interviewing them, you're sitting in a boardroom and they're all looking at him and like, why should we hire you to be the leader of your organization? And he says, I'm really meek. You're going to hire him? Why is that? Think about that. Think about the reality that, that this is the first of the Beatitudes that actually is about how we interact with the people around us, how we treat other people. The first thing that when Jesus is giving the orientation about being a follower of his in a world that is so completely saturated with opposing ideas and views, the first two are about us being Humble and, and before the Lord. And this, this one is the first time he says, let me tell you how you should treat other people. Are you meek? You know the problem is that in our culture, meekness has been equated with weakness. And that is anything but biblical. In fact, true meekness, true meekness takes more strength than being somebody who exhibits some kind of of, of anger or charisma or all these other things that seem to be kind of a, a natural outgrowth of our personality. The, the, the idea of being meek takes more strength than it does to let your natural tendency shine in your relationships with other, other people. Now think about the people who are listening to this. They are waiting for this this, 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 this religious and political leader to come up and deliver by Man's natural hand, the promises of God. They were looking for somebody who would stand up to Rome. They were looking for that strong, externally good-looking, whatever political personality that was going to step up and lead this. And Jesus comes in and says, well, you're looking for that. Blessed are the meek. 
Do you know there's only two people in the entire Bible that in the inspired word of God are described as being meek? Do you know who those two people are? The first one was Moses. Moses, you know, he only led the greatest rebellion in all of history, leading thousands, if not millions of Jews out of captivity in Israel. He stood up strongly before the forces of his day, but did so in a way that reflected God's character and his heart. The word of God calls him meek. So obviously, meekness and weakness are not the same thing. You know the other person who is called meek? Jesus. The one who stood before Rome was falsely accused. Was All kinds of things were said terrible about him. And the scripture says he stood there meekly. Now, obviously, meekness is not a sign of weakness. The English language understanding of this word does a complete disservice to it because it somehow gets equated with passivity. It becomes about not caring, about not responding, about not having strength in face of adversity. But in reality, the Greek word that is used that's translated here is a word that's called praus. This word is translated as meek, but can also be translated as being gentle. But the word, interestingly enough, is also translated as being a wild animal that has been tamed. You see, meekness is not about weakness. Meekness is about strength under submission to the master. Do you hear that? Meekness is not about being passive. It's not about not caring. It's not about, it's not about not standing up for truth. But it's about truly believing that God is who he says he is, that God will do what he says will do, and that being the defining thing for how we behave and how we respond to other people. A Clydesdale horse can stomp you into the ground. But when it has been tamed, that strength is under the direction of the master. Does it cease to be strong just because it has submitted itself to the authority of another? Of course not. But it has allowed itself to be under the control of something greater. The first two Beatitudes are internal. But this beatitude is the first one that indicates how we interact with the people around us. You see, your words, your actions, you have more power than you can imagine in the way that you speak and how you speak to other people. That power must be under the control of the Holy Spirit for there to be a difference in the way that we respond to a world around us that is constantly trying to push you into a response that doesn't reflect Jesus. The scripture says they will know we are Christians by our love. That love, choosing to love our enemy, which is later on described in this same Sermon on the Mount, choosing to turn the other cheek, takes more strength than rising up and responding in your flesh. It does. And yet, when we are faced with those options, the flesh inside of me wants to give an eye for an eye. 
Over and over again, you hear, well, it's not fair. They did this first. Listen, listen to me. The sin of other people does not justify you sinning in response. The world will tell you, well, they did, they did that, so do it back. The world will tell you that your job is to make sure that if they are saying something in an unkind way, that you need to present to them truth, even if it's in an unkind way back, even though God is saying, listen, how you communicate is just as important as what you communicate. How you interact with the people around you matters. Are you meek? Now, these disciples who had been trained in the Old Testament would know that Jesus, as he often did, was actually quoting from the Old Testament. He did that all the time. Jesus used scripture to support what he was trying to teach his people. So flip over to Psalm chapter 37. Psalm 37. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, and then I'm going to give you 11 characteristics really quickly of somebody who is trying to live a meek life, starting with verse number one. The psalmist says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. And he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. In this passage, the psalmist is writing, giving people the idea of how they should be waiting, how they should be interacting with the world around them while they wait for God to deliver his promises. And in this verse, you actually heard it in verse number 11. He says, the meek shall inherit the land. The word land there is a word that is also can be transliterated into the world, vice versa. Specifically for the psalmist and the people of Israel that were actually listening to Jesus' teaching here, the concept there is literally God had made a promise to Israel that they would have their own land. It is a promise to God written all the way through the New Testament into the, into the New Testament as well. That promise still stands, by the way. God doesn't back out on his promises. And eventually, whether or not it's completely realized on this planet, in eternity, those Jewish people who give their life to Jesus Christ will have a land. But it also is a, an application for you and I as God's people. That as those of us who are committed followers of Jesus Christ, we will inherit the earth. But how in the meantime, while I'm sitting here in this world... With evil men, evil plans, all kinds of stuff going around us. It seems like evil people are prospering while, while sometimes good people have wrong things done to them. Life doesn't seem fair and all that. How can I remain meek in the face of all that? The psalmist gives us 11 suggestions. Number one, 
in verse 1 and verse 7, it says this. The meek are not controlled by worry about evil doers. Evil doers. <laughs> evil doers. The meek are not controlled by worry about evil doers. Verse 1 says, fret not yourself because of evil doers. Anybody else have a problem with fretting? Anybody? You guys know what fret means? The word fret is literally translated to burn. To burn. In other words, we become consumed by the worries of this world. It sits in our mind. We obsess about it to the point where it affects our emotions and how we interact with other people. Some people get so consumed with worry and fret that their relationship with God struggles because they have these doubts that come in because there's so much evil and evil men in the world that we are consumed by that evil. Now notice, the scripture does not say ignore it. It doesn't say pretend like it's not there, but what it does say is don't fret about it. Don't fret about it. Listen, a lot of times the reason that we have a struggle with being meek and submitted is because we are so consumed with the evil outside the world that we have a problem believing that God is going to do what he has promised to do. And because of that, we feel like we have to do something to supersede and help God along in his plans. And so therefore, we feel like we need to rise up and use the world's tools against it. They're lying. They're, they're shouting. We want to shout as loud as lost people, loud as people who are representing evil things. We, we want to use their exact tactics against them in order to help God and his plan. And meanwhile, God is over here saying, listen, don't fret. I'm in control. I've got this. Be aware of it. Pray about it. Lay it before the throne of God, but live like his promises are true. And yet for me, and I struggle with anxiety and worry all the time, the biggest struggle I have is laying my control of the circumstances around me before the throne of God and saying, God, I don't have control over this. You take it. Number one, the meek are not controlled by the worrying about what evil men are doing. Number two, the meek are not envious of evildoers. That's also in verse number one. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my mind and I'm thinking, Lord, why is that evil guy got more money than I got? Why are evil men prospering here on this planet? Why do they have a bigger house, more influence? Why do they have control of this, 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 this body of government? Why are they in control of all these different things? And I become jealous of what they have. Because somehow I think that God is failing his purposes when evil men are, are having a good time. Listen, Scripture tells us that the meek, we're not to be envious of what they have. Whether it's money or power or influence or good looks or whatever it may be. Because in the end, everything they have, according to the Scripture, will wither and fade. And in the long run, means absolutely nothing in eternity. 
And if we do believe what the Bible says, those evil men who do not know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will spend eternity suffering in a place called hell. And we're going to be jealous of them because they have some nice stuff now. The meek are not focused on that. The meek are not envious of evildoers because our value system is based on the kingdom and what he says is valuable, not on the things that the world says are valuable. So number one, the meek are not controlled by worry about evildoers. They're not envious of evildoers. Verse three, the meek trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land to befriend faithfulness. If I were to ask you, do you trust in the Lord? Most everybody in this room would probably say, well, yeah. Well, are you acting like you trust in the Lord? Do you think like you're trusting in the Lord? When you're interacting with other people in your relationships, are you trusting the Lord with those relationships? Or are you trying to control and manipulate and, 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 and trying to get what you want out of those relationships? Are you trusting that the Lord can use even the devices of evil men to accomplish his purposes? Or are you trying to control things for your own benefit, your own benefit for the family? Or are you having a peace that passes understanding because you can trust that the Lord has not relinquished control? Guys, if there was one issue that I think a majority of us in this room struggle with, it's control. You too? (laughs) Controlling our, our family, controlling our bosses, the people we work with, controlling our government, controlling the way things should be. And if we're not careful, if we don't honestly live like we are trusting in the Lord moment by moment by moment when things spin out of control we can lose face and have doubts spring up in our hearts and our minds the meek one trusts in the Lord number four the meek are to be settled in God's faithfulness that that second part of verse number three dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness this is a very picturesque artistic way of saying something Basically, he's saying is you trust in the Lord in that first part. The second part is this. The primary definer of how you live your life is based on your belief that God is faithful. That faithfulness is the foundation for why we as followers of God do everything. When the world around us seems to be spinning out of control, when things don't seem like they're good, The one thing that we should fall back on and we should build our life on is that God is faithful. God is faithful. One of you believes it. God is faithful. He is. And so the next time that your life seems out of control and the people around you are not doing what they should be doing and the government's not doing what it should be doing and, you, and your finances are going up and down and everything that you have built your, your life on is beginning to crumble, you should not crumble because you believe that God is faithful. That foundation enables us to remain meek in the face of all types of adversity. Number five, the meek will choose to do good no matter what. In other words, the circumstance I'm faced with 
have no bearing on my behavior. I am not going to justify being sinful because somebody is being sinful to me. I've, I've been a parent for 20 some odd years now. You know what I'm used to hearing in the back of a van back in the day? But dad, he hit me first. You ever heard that? But dad, he stole my candy bar. But dad, but dad, we as grown up adult Christians are no better. We justify our sinful behavior in response to somebody else's sinful behavior toward us all the time. God is saying, listen, how you are treated should have no bearing on you doing right. I'm not saying it's easy. But whether or not you're going to be rewarded has no bearing on whether you should do right. Whether or not you're going to be persecuted or punished should have no bearing on you doing right. We do right because God is faithful. We, are love, we, we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. All of these things should be part of our DNA moving forward, and we should not seek to justify sinful behavior just because somebody has mistreated us. Jesus didn't do it. You want to know what's not fair? A man who is sinless being punished for my sin. You want to know what's not fair? Me getting to go to heaven, even though my behavior means that I deserve hell. That's not fair. And yet, all the time when we cry out to God, Lord, it's not fair. These evil men are having positive things done to them. I am not getting the blessing that I feel like I deserve financially or, or physically or no matter what it may be. We, we have these arguments with God about the reality of, I'm, well, I will do right if you do this first. The meek will choose to do good no matter what. Number six, starting in verse number four. The meek will delight in the Lord. In other words, they will, they will find their satisfaction. They will find their joy not in the things of this world, not in the comfort and the care or freedom that we have in our, in our nation. We will find our delight in the law of the Lord. Number seven, the meek are committed to the way of God. Not my way, but God's way. So when God comes forth and he says, blessed are the meek, being meek is a characteristic that is important to me. This is what God is saying. Guess what? That should be important to you and to me. It's more important for us to be meek in the eyes of God than it is for us to be strong and popular and charismatic in the eyes of the world. And yet, so many of us have elevated characteristics that are not biblical into more important than the things that Jesus has said out of his own mouth. Like I said, would you hire a meek pastor? Not a meek's pastor. You already did that a couple twice. A meek pastor? The meek are committed to the way of God. Number eight, the meek places their hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord, that's in verse number six. Just to remind you, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So many of us are looking for righteousness and justice to be established on this earth through earthly means. 
We place our hope in political movements. We place our hope in countries and and leaders. We place our hope even in religious leaders and pastors and even organizations, no matter what it may be. And the reality is that every one of those things is going to let you down. You place your hope in a spouse, they will let you down. If you place your hope in your family, they will let you down because they are human beings. They are not perfect. That is not where you need to look for your hope. The meek finds their hope in the Lord. And it means that we believe the Lord when it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I don't have to worry about getting back at people because God, the righteous judge, will mete out justice according to his will and his plan. Do I trust him to do what he says he will do? Do I trust him? Is my hope there or is my hope somewhere in the things of this world? Number nine, and this is a, this is a hard one for the meeks, plural, The meek are quiet and patient before the Lord. Guys, we're not good at quietness. We don't like quiet. We fill every quiet moment with noise. And we aren't patient. We get mad at the drive-thru when that hamburger takes more than three minutes. (laughs) It's the truth. We're not good at being patient. We are in a culture that gets everything we want exactly when we want it. In the meantime, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of times our lack of meekness is from a lack of patience with the people around us. The Lord is saying, listen, you're going to wait for me. It's not your timing. It's mine. The meek are quiet and patient before the Lord. Number 10, the meek are not controlled by anger. They do not allow anger to control their responses, even to evil circumstances. Do you have an anger problem? The reality is that most of us in our flesh do. And finally, number 11, the meek delight in in abundant peace found only in the Lord. And the scripture says at that last verse, the meek will inherit the land. Translate that in the New Testament. The meek will inherit the earth. You see, the world says that the loud, the loudest, the most gifted, the most charismatic, the strongest, the best looking, the most connected, that person's going to inherit everything because in this world and on this planet, that seems to be what's happening. And we, as God's people, have bought into those values to the point where we have allowed our spiritual leaders to exhibit more of those things than the actual characteristics of the Holy Spirit. My question to you, and the question to me, is simple. Am I meek? You see, submission, that meekness... Submission to God and his authority leads to experiencing God's blessing. The blessing of, of even the, this concept, listen. In order to receive Christ, the scripture tells us to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved, right? That's what Romans tells us for salvation. Do you realize what that confession that Jesus is Lord actually means. 
It literally means to say, he's God, I'm not. I need to be willing. I'm not saying you have to have everything submitted because reality is, is that your entire life is a process of submission. But there needs to be a recognition of a desire to submit myself to the God of the universe who created me, to recognize he has the right to tell me when I'm sinning and that I need saving. Confess that Jesus is Lord. That takes meekness. Are you meek? You see, many of us like to stand in our own self-righteousness. We like to judge other people based on our standard. Jesus came in and turned those values of this world on his head saying, listen, you want to be in my kingdom? You want to be great in my kingdom? Be the least of these. You want to, you want to inherit the world? Give up everything to me. You, you want to experience my blessing? Submit yourself to me and my values. Are you meek today? If you're honest with yourself, all of us struggle with it. Every last one of us have areas that we need to be willing to surrender to God, to submit to him, and in our interaction with other people, we need to be willing to submit and allow his values to shine through us so that people can see a difference in the way we live. That's how you win people to Christ, by responding differently than the world responds to whatever circumstance you're facing in this life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Are you meek today? Do you struggle with it? I know, and I'm being honest here, I do. There is nothing natural people. So as we sing this last song, I ask you to just ask God to speak to your heart. Are there areas that I need to be meek today? Maybe you don't even know our here today for those who but also to those who do know him who need to surrender. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Thank you for your word, the truth that's in it. Thank you for loving us in spite, in spite of our sin. Now I pray today that we would surrender ourselves, that we would submit our strength to you so that you can use it how you see fit. And Lord, help us to be meek so that we will inherit the earth. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand with us. The altars are open. Join us in singing this song.